Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. All right, everybody, welcome back to the International Sonography Podcast. We're going to continue the third episode with our part two interview of Joan Baker. And we left off on part one talking about the Seattle University program. So let's jump right back into that. And so how many years were you at Seattle University? Eight. Oh, okay. I think. How long between leaving Seattle U did you start the Bellevue Community College? Program. I didn't start the Bellevue Community College. Program. It was already going. I retired for six years. Mm. And my husband retired at the same time. Wasn't quite expecting that. So I went back to work. <laughs> he stayed have... retired. Did, were you guys just, did you feel like there was too much time at home alone together at that point? I suppose you could put it that way. It was, um, yeah, we were in one another's space, that was for sure. So... Um, yeah. I just decided I wanted to um, do some more, and he had already felt like he'd given all he had to give, and his um, Reagan split up the NIH grants. They used to be big grants to a few people, and he wanted to give many grants to many more people, smaller grants. And they had one of the biggest grants programs in the country, mm-hmm. and um, 35, 36 people on one grant. That's a very large grant, yeah. so they didn't renew it, and he... So he figured that was yeah. his exit at that time? Yes, that was mm-hmm. his exit. Well, he went around the world teaching, really, um, sort of, although it was about half a dozen of them that would go around teaching Doppler to all these different countries. For a specific company? Well, he was, yes, he was, so, well, at that time, there was only one company to selling Doppler, uh, uh, oh, Pulse Doppler, that was ATL, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And then you went to Bellevue and headed that program? Yes. Okay. Yes. And stayed at Bellevue for how many years? Another eight there? years, I think, until ni- 2004. That's great. What was the largest differences at that time between Seattle University program and Bellevue? Well, they were. One was a baccalaureate program. One was an, um, a, a two-year program. Mm-hmm. But there really wasn't that much difference in a way because I, I certainly didn't expect less of the students at Bellevue than I did at the students at Seattle U. And a lot of the students at Bellevue already had baccalaureate degrees mm. in other subjects, not in in that one. Uh, because we had many applicants, like 120, 150 applicants for t- 20 places. Spaces, yeah. And so if you have that type of, of you know, dynamic, you're going to tend to, to pick the more mature um, academically as well as, you know, socially. Mm-hmm. And that's going to lead you to be have many more baccalaureate mm-hmm. students. Mm-hmm. In fact, it makes you question whether you have the right mix of students because... Mm-hmm you ask questions and they often need a mature response and a life of experience to respond to and before you know it you're picking only those type of people yeah um so but um so i didn't expect less performance from from two year program students than four year but then if you had the student for four years that was quite a lot more time to yes. mold them into what you thought was a good sonographer, but we didn't have that many that were four years with us. They were usually the last two years with us. And the year before that was prerequisites, really. Mm -hmm. In Seattle U's case, they were the second year of school. Mm -hmm. In Bellevue's case, they were the prerequisites when we didn't know who they were. Mm -hmm. So... Well, there's quite a quite a cost difference between the two schools, always. Oh yes, yeah. but I think you always get what you pay for too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think your future is probably better with a baccalaureate degree, mm-hmm. um, and I think the discipline of the degree is mm-hmm. worth having, and I think that was the way to go. But we weren't allowed to go that way, so. Can you 
clarify for those listeners who don't know the history of why there was a difference between the junior college and the bachelor's degree programs? Well, back in about 1970 was the birth of, of junior colleges throughout the United States. And before that, there were no junior colleges. So they had to look at what, now they've got these junior colleges, what could they do? What could they produce? Mm -hmm. And Allied Health was one of those possible places where some of the professions could um, have junior college programs, particularly ones that were um, already sort of rather ad hoc. And, um, for example, there were 23 different Allied Health professions but profession like physical therapy was already at baccalaureate level and sometimes up to a PhD level now, but back then it was not a two-year type of program, mm-hmm. whereas X-ray was a two-year program that could be based in a hospital or in it, wherever, and so that was a natural to push it to a junior college as one of the places that can produce x-ray technologists. Mm-hmm. So when ultrasound came along, it was the push was to put it along with the junior colleges, and we couldn't get it through the AMA as a four-year baccalaureate minimum because they were driven to find more programs that could go through a two-year cycle or be what they wanted to, to do was to put it under existing, already existing programs. Mm-hmm. And so there was a big drive by them and a push by them to make it a radiology-based program, and it was actually the absolute opposite of what we wanted. We had already experienced people with very varied backgrounds and physicians who had a very varied background. I mean, people like Joseph Holmes, one of the you know original physicians in ultrasound he was not a radiologist he was a urologist Mm. Uh, then there were others that were neurologists and so on so there was radiology wasn't a prominent physician component of the AIUM and of the ASUTS there were a lot of people with an x-ray background but not totally I mean sometimes it was a secretary Um, sometimes on the job training and somehow because that person had been intrigued by it and wanted to study it or they were considered the brightest bulb on the tree and whoever was running the show said why don't you go and do this they went to a weekend course and came back as a what we called a weekend wonder and started doing ultrasound more power to them they did an amazing job given the little training that they had to, to go, I mean, they had to be self-starters. They didn't have anybody supporting them. And I used to teach them around my kitchen table. And so they're called my kitchen table gang. And um, they did a, did a great job. But they'd been picked out by their institution and then said, well, there's the machine, go, go for it. Mm. They didn't have very much to go, you know, to go on. Yeah. So we would, I'd bring them into my house for two or three weeks and take them to work every day. And my husband would teach them physics at night. Wow. And so that's what so we So your did. own institution. Yeah. Yeah. The that Baker was, that program. That was where it started, yeah. <laughs> Dinner at Jones turned yeah. into. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And uh, let's see, Renee Gordon, that's how she got her training. Um, Gretchen. Wooded in how in Alaska got hers that way, so yeah. It was, wow, it has really made an evolution, you know, evolved in that yeah. sense. But yeah, when you've gone from kitchen table physics to kitchen table ultrasound to yes. what they have now, that's that's a huge huge progression. So you mentioned Marvine Craig and Joseph Holmes in the article during those early years. How did you know them at the time, and what roles did they play in the progression of ultrasound in medicine? Well, Joseph Holmes was considered one of the originals, and um, Marvine used to work for him, and he persuaded her to become a sonographer. 
And she's a wonderful lady, and she's published a tremendous number of educational books. When did I actually meet them? I don't know. You you might ask, you can't ask Joe Holmes anymore, but you could ask Marveen. She may remember, and I don't, but it was way back then. Okay. Yeah. And uh, who is Dr. Howery? Howery. Well, mm-hmm. Howery and Holmes worked together. Okay. Howery was a resident in radiology, and he wanted to. He had an interest in ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Dr. Holmes was a urologist, and um, Howery wanted to continue his work in ultrasound. So he came to Denver and joined, and Holmes. And Holmes' was responsibility was to make sure that he got through his residency in radiology and got to do ultrasound at the same time. Hmm. So that's who Howery that's who, was. That's who he was. Okay. So you state in the article, and I quote, the sonic boom of ultrasound in the 70s came to be with the help of personnel performing clinical studies. Could you elaborate on that statement and paint a picture for us how things were for those performing ultrasounds at that time? Ultrasound had been around a, a while. People had invested, not necessarily connected to even medicine, just people who invest in startup ideas and companies had invested in this new modality that they thought was going to help medicine called ultrasound. And quite a few years go by, you know, before you realize anything from that. Mm -hmm. And quite a few years had gone by, I guess, and they were starting to get impatient. And so these sales forces got ramped up and they started to sell the equipment, but they didn't have anybody that knew how to operate it. Sometimes a hospital or a department bought it, budgeted for it and bought it, and then thought they would solve the problem of who was going to operate it. And that was the people that were sort of sent to become the kitchen table gang or Mm -hmm. whatever. But a bit later than that, they were selling too many machines for that. Didn't have enough beds in my house for that. You couldn't turn out that many students out of your kitchen. (laughs) That's right. So um, we had to... um, the sonic boom hit and um, the people that really knew what they were doing they were you know um, snatched up by the commercial departments that needed companies that needed um, people to go out and not necessarily sell but sell the concept Mm -hmm. and and that technology Mm -hmm. and the companies were ready to pay them more than they were earning in their clinical world by Mm -hmm. sometimes up to a double or more So it was a great incentive, Mm -hmm. but in a way, the field lost the the best people because they went commercial then, and you couldn't blame them. I mean, that was a financial decision. For sure. So um, that's the really story we named the sonic boom, was we didn't have enough people, and history has a way of repeating itself. Mm -hmm. And when Obamacare came in, I feared for the same thing, that you wouldn't have enough, so many more people would have access and ultrasound would be such a popular modality to use in a diag- an initial diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Where were the people coming from that knew what they were doing and could do ultrasound and keep up with this new large number of, of people that now had access who hadn't before? Mm-hmm. Don't know where we are in that, but uh, I guess Obamacare is maybe about to be rescinded or parts of it. But it's always a problem when a field doesn't have enough people to deliver what it is they're capable of delivering because medicine can't afford to wait for them. Mm-hmm. And the more sophisticated the, the modality, the longer it takes to train people, the longer the time is where that access is denied. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. Yeah. What do you do? You see a solution to that problem for for ultrasound? Well, it's certainly not to solve it the way the other it was originally, which was to turn them out faster. Yeah. Uh, make them weekend wonders. Yeah, um, for sure. We're not going back there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think medical students have to be taught to go back to how medicine used to be practiced, which was with physical exams and better selection rather than this sort of shotgun approach where they order every study in the book and then say we'll sort out what's wrong with this person when we get all the results Mm -hmm. I think that maybe the patients have to be more carefully selected Mm -hmm. yeah somewhere something has to give something has to give yeah for sure 
At one point, ultrasound was the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine, or the AIUM. It was their baby. So tell me what caused a group of ultrasound technical specialists to come together and form the proposal for the new ultrasound society by and for non-physicians. I don't... Ellie may remember exactly where we were. We were somewhere in Winnipeg, Canada, and we were probably over a drink, and we said hey, let's go and tell them that we're going to form this society. There were six of us there at the time. The three or four of them were Canadian and the rest of us were American. Two of us, <laughs> three of us. And um, that was a bit... So over a drink, maybe on a napkin, planned, planned the Oh, society. no, not even that, not that fancy, not, not planned at all. <laughs> just like, just hey, weird. when we wake up tomorrow, we're No, not even this. that. We're just going to go and tell them what we're going to do. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that Board of Governors meeting that you and Ellie Schnitzer attended with the previously mentioned proposal in hand for the Independent Society. What was that experience like for the both of you? You know, I hardly remember it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I can remember it was about 7 o'clock in the morning and we went down into the boardroom and they were all sitting there looking at us and we said, oh, we come with this letter to form an organization for non-physicians and non-engineers because we weren't represented. Mm -hmm. And most of them thought it was a waste of time, but it was our prerogative to waste our time if that's what we wanted to do. And you were speaking to physicians on the board. That's Yes, that's all. That's the only people that were there. And by that time, they were all diagnostic providers? No, no. There There was a couple of still uh, physiatrists, but Mm -hmm. they, you know, nobody oversuaded the vote. Was asking two declining votes or something like that. One of them was Dennis White's. <laughs> and w- oh, it was. And yes. what, what was his? He was against it at that point. Well, he wasn't against it. He was just concerned that it would get bigger than they were. So he was. Yeah, I I read that that there was some that yeah. had that concern. Yeah, he was one. And they were right. <laughs> they were not too too much later. I actually took it on as a bit of a challenge. I mean, it was sort of. Okay, there's a, there's something to shoot for. We'll be bigger than you in X number of years. Sometimes it takes that I'm going to prove it to you factor to really. Well, yeah, but on. nobody had been particularly negative, so it mm-hmm. wasn't really a adversarial thing. I'll mm-hmm. show you or anything like mm-hmm. that. It was mm-hmm. just a it was a, a benchmark to shoot for. How would it have impacted the profession if the AIUM would have put up a harder fight to keep ultrasound under its control at that time? And did you and Ellie Schnitzer really envision how much the profession would be growing? I don't think we thought about it. You don't think you thought about it? No. <laughs> I don't think we had any really, you know, shattering long-term goals. We were just going to do it, and we were so proud of ourselves because there were six people in Winnipeg and there was 13 in Cleveland, you know, so yeah. we doubled in size in a year. That's right. You thought if we keep it this rate, yes. we're definitely going to we'll, make we'll be all right. Ourselves. Yeah, we'll survive. <laughs> we didn't borrow a dime from anybody, so... So did you, did Dennis White, did you ever talk to him in the, in the later years? And um, He was president when I was president, and if I didn't hear at least twice from Dennis in one week, I had to check that he was still around. <laughs> okay. And what were most of those conversations like with him? Well, he was English mm-hmm. and um, very verbose, like I am. And so they went back and forth. Yeah. And there was no fancy communication in those days, I think. There were fax machines, but we didn't use them a lot. So, um, and my secretary did more typing for Dennis White, to Dennis White, than she did anything else. Oh, I love that back and forth between you two. Yes, it was good. So you eventually won the AIUM's permission to proceed with the non-physician organization that you guys had originally proposed. Did you see this as a, a huge win for ultrasound, for the profession? I didn't think of it as a as a win last game. I, mm-hmm. We didn't win. We kind of just went there and said this is what we were going to do, and they didn't shoot us down, and so we did it. So we can. So some of that is attributed then to the not shooting it down because if they really yeah. wanted to put up a fight, oh yes, it could have yes. changed the whole profession. Yeah. yeah. Well, somebody would have done it. It might have happened a little later, but it would have happened. 
Because I can't see physicians would have taken over ultrasound, you know. Mm -hmm. It would have still been non-physicians that mm -hmm. performed it. Did you meet Ellie Schnitzer, and how did your relationship lead to the formation of the Constitution and bylaws for this new society? I can't remember exactly how Ellie and I met. It was probably that night that I met Don as well, <laughs> for all I know. But it was one of those nights in Winnipeg. Okay. And they told we went to, I think we found out that Dennis was the president, and so we went to him and asked him if we could bring something to the board, and he gave us the 7 o'clock hour, and we went, and that was it. We came out of there. I had the original letter, and I gave it to SDMS, and somebody threw it out. Oh. Well, they cleaned, you know, off from one person, one administration to another, and this didn't mean anything to them, so they tossed it. Somebody want this old letter? No. Um, but anyway, um, and then afterwards, Ellie and I decided to divvy up the what we needed to do next, and mm -hmm. Constitution bylaws was one thing. Filing the tax-exempt status was another. So I filed the tax-exempt status, and he took the Constitution bylaws. He did a great job, too. It lasted for years. And where was he from, or was he in the research oh, side or the clinical No, he, he side was the, he was a, a sonographer for uh, Ross Brown. Ross Brown was on the board of AIUM, and he was the advisor to the ASUTS. Hmm. And um, he, those two, he had worked in um, Oklahoma, and he also worked in Winnipeg. Hmm. So Ross... Um, his a lot of times in those days it was a physician and a sonographer who worked as a pair and it was Ross and, and Ellie was the pair mm -hmm. and then we go back where was Ross's practice in Winnipeg or? Uh, it was in both places Winnipeg oh, okay. and Oklahoma and all sorts of places in between he was a neurosurgeon but didn't complete neurosurgery and went into ultrasound Oh, so he was kind of a different background person as well where was Ellie originally from? Don't know. Do you still talk to him? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, yes, I do. Um, we laugh and joke together. But um, Where is he now? I think he's in Tucson. He's hmm. in Arizona somewhere, I think. The last check. He's kind of <laughs> mobile. Uh, I met him at the um, ARDMS and uh, commemorative, 40-year commemorative in Washington, D.C. a year or two ago. And I, somewhere on a piece of paper, a napkin probably. Yeah. <laughs> I had his phone number, but I've lost it. Oh, well. So I'm waiting for him to contact me. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to have to track him down. Or I've been busy. <laughs> have to track him down on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, probably both in. Now that there's the technology yes. that you guys didn't have, now we'll, we'll have to track him down on Facebook. Yes. <laughs> So you talk about, in the article as well, the great name debate with the profession. So initially, it was my understanding that there was a preference to stay away from the words technologist or technician within the name. Can you elaborate on that and tell us how the name that we have today came to be? I think everybody, and I say everybody like there were a lot, there were a few, mm -hmm. to say 13 of us um, at the first meeting of the ASUTS, we all wanted to stay away from technician or technologist because they already had a preconceived notion of what that person was and what that person did. And the examples we had was the x-ray tech, uh, the lab tech, these type of examples. And the word tech and technologist, technician was kind of demeaning in, the, in, in a sense. I mean, it wasn't something say, I'm a technologist. You know, it was, yeah, I'm a tech. Mm -hmm. So there was some obvious differences. In Canada, it, there was very spelt out specific differences. I don't remember what they were, but they were well defined in the, in the labor force, um, whether you got the name technician or technologist. So we wanted to stay away from them. We came up with, or Ellie came up with the, the technical specialists, and we liked it because it meant we had to explain who we were. Mm -hmm. What we didn't realize was that the people that came into it were not about to explain it. They just called themselves a tech. 
so we lost the gain we might have gained just because it wasn't widely enough expect accepted mm-hmm. um now oh something else i was going to say um yeah i think it forced us to sit down and say well what do we really do and why are we different mm-hmm. why do we deserve to be called something different if we do the same thing as an x-ray tech does why aren't we called an ultrasound tech well we came up with the fact that in ultrasound you have to be able to read the image that you just made in order to make the next image that is not true in any of the other modalities you produce a set of films or whatever from a protocol and somebody else decides whether they're diagnostic or not mm. and that is the physician but in this in our field that decision is made by the operator who is usually the sonographer and so that was one thing that was definitely different and it was actually a relationship that the x-ray technologists were very um jealous of because they would put their films in a pile in a doctor's office and that was the end of their contribution we would be asked to come in sit down next to the person and help them interpret the films they were looking at also from a legal point of view the interpreter only got to see the images that the operator chose to let him let him or her see whereas in other circumstances whatever pictures were taken were presented in front of the radiologist or whoever but in our case that wasn't so and so we may have seen the pathology didn't recognize it and moved on and never took a picture of it mm-hmm. and so we felt that our we had a different relationship with our radiologist it wasn't a question of well i was there meaning that the transducer passed over that part of the body it was um did you see everything that there was to see did you go beyond the borders of the kidney did you go above the liver did you you know there was all those questions that the sonographer had to answer and that was very different and more responsibility for the correct diagnosis to be made than um in other modalities in england for example and in australia and as well the physician put his hands up and said i can't read something i didn't see so he doesn't read it anymore the sonographer does mm-hmm. so the responsibility for interpretation is falls on in the hands of the non-physician and we're doing the same thing and it's and that's the reason why we spend so much more time with each patient is because we're not doing the interpreting if we were doing the interpreting we could do many more patients a day because we'd have the answer without having to take 36 pictures to prove it mm-hmm. and so that's the difference between a 10 minute study and a 1 hour study mm-hmm. yeah so with that background that's what we felt made us a different person and that's what drove us to come up with a different name yeah well, i agree that seems well founded and so that was that and that's how it is that's um, how it is yeah the responsibility is more um when you do have to make sure that you are the eyes yeah you are not just the picture taking one picture so so tell me about the name how the asuts got called the asuts Or the no, ass, 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 ass. <laughs> well, by a southern gentleman, by the name of Dr. Bill McKinney, who was a neurologist, who ran an ultrasound department in Winston Salem, North Carolina, and he was very fond of and very positive towards technical specialists or sonographers, mm-hmm. very supportive of them. So he was in. Um, he wasn't being rude or. anything like that he came on the stage to congratulate us as to how we'd grown in such a short time and all the things that we had done but he got up there in his southern drawl he says something about you assets <laughs> and four or five of us in the back room said what and sure enough he had used this term assets we looked at one another and said what do they want us to call them assmds <laughs> <laughs> we've got to change the name and so the name was changed was it one of those like hey, we're changing it now 
It's not. You'd think so, but it actually didn't get changed until 1980. Oh, so it took a while. It took a while, yes. Hmm, but, but you had used the term yes. prior to that. Yes, I for had. The, for both the registry and for the JRC DMS mm-hmm. and for the creation of the occupation, mm-hmm. which was very important Yeah, that that had that name. So are you to be credited with the term sonographer? I don't know. I believe so. I took the tame radiographer. So how was general recruitment of the ASUTS done back in the early years? Um, Well, most of the recruitment for members was actually done by the people who traveled, and those were the repairmen, the application specialists. We relied heavily on them. They went around the country installing equipment and sort of selling the ASUTS, if you like, by mm-hmm. saying, oh, there's this society, you should join them and get be a member and get all the inside information and so on. So that's who we used for that. We were very proud of ourselves because in 1969 there was the six of us. In 1970 there was 13 of us. We doubled in size. How about that? <laughs> but it quickly grew. Yeah. And mainly because of what the commercial world did for us in that way. Um, so, um, this, the election of officers was done in the Cleveland meeting on the 1970. Mm-hmm. And yes, the bylaws outlined who we needed. We needed a president, a president-elect, a secretary-treasurer. I think they were molded into one at the beginning. And those were elected from the 13 people. If I remember rightly, I think they were in my room or something like that. I mean, there was nothing <laughs> Not fancy so about this, no point. formal about that. <laughs> it was just like divvy up the work, guys, and spread it out amongst the 13 people. Yeah, it maybe wasn't the election process no. that it is today. And L.E. Schnitzer yeah. was made president-elect, but the way he'd written the Constitution and bylaws resulted in him being unable to serve. Because by the time I had yeah. done my two years, he came up and he had already gone commercial, so he couldn't be the president. So we, the bylaws said that the president was then the vice president, I think, and that was Shale Harris. Mm-hmm. And Shale Harris went commercial two months after taking office as president. So he was out the door and it became Pat Nuss. So we had three presidents in one Term. Pat, fortunately, enjoyed her job as a sonographer in North Carolina. I think she worked for Bill McKinney, if I'm right, yes. Oh, really? Yeah, and so she became the president. <laughs> so that's so funny. That's so you kept running into that. You know, once you leave and go to the company, it's kind of the same problem with the companies yes. and the clinical sites, you know, not being able to do both. Yes, yeah. yes. Hmm. So that was the story. Could you share with us any struggles that the ASUTS had establishing its visibility in the early years? And did you guys come up against any financial challenges at that time? We didn't borrow a dime from anybody to get started. We did have a problem in 1974. In 1974, the meeting was in Seattle, and we had a person who ran for was we used to take nominations from the floor as well as you know by mail and this one person wanted to obviously be involved and they nominated them or were nominated for every position from president down and then um, they kind of disappeared and we couldn't find them Shirley Staino was the president at the time and she couldn't find this person they eventually were sending you know registered letters And the last registered letter went out and the person got it and responded. But our treasury was sort of at the bottom. Um, Don't know totally why. But this person had been uh, working for some political campaign. So I think that the the postage meter had kind of emptied. We don't know exactly why. Shirley Staino, unbeknownst to anybody, bailed out financially herself. Huh. From her own resources. Yeah, and that's an amazing thing. Great thing that she did for the society, and shout out to Shirley. 
So I'm quoting from your 2005 article when I read, these early days were very exciting for both physicians and technical specialists, trying to envision how the new modality would develop and who is going to be responsible for making it possible for the field to grow. Could you elaborate on what you were speaking about in that part of the article? Well, that's sort of getting into the re- the turf wars. And they were horrendous, the turf wars between one medical specialty and another. But they were all physician-generated. There weren't sonographers involved in turf wars other than by virtue of being associated with a particular physician with this particular background. And they were sort of divvying up the body, you know, they were sort of between the different specialties, which is not really very productive for, for future growth. It is, but it's diversity with growth, which can be difficult to handle when they both hit at the same time. Mm-hmm. So um, everybody wanted a piece of the pie, mm-hmm. and they were fighting for it. Yeah, that made it really difficult for you. Well, it did, and some labs, there were five labs in one hospital, and others, there was one lab that was the umbrella and the sonographers produced all the work and five different physicians read the studies. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes one physician had taken over the total responsibility. So it was very varied. Mm-hmm. And sonographers had to be choose how they worked or took what they got or whatever. It was not easy. Yeah, you guys are kind of put in the middle of... Well, yes, we just had to go with whatever survived in the administration. We couldn't dictate what would happen. Wow, yeah, I can appreciate how that would have been difficult to sit and watch. Well, on the flip side, can you tell us about your excitement around the new Ultrasound Society and what your hopes and dreams were for its future? not sure I took the time to think about it, to be honest. Um, We were just putting out the fires under our feet. Um, and some of them were political and some of them were turf wars and some of them were um, within the different medical specialties. There weren't any wars fighting amongst ourselves. Mm-hmm. It was just trying to find our way through the minefield. Yeah. So was the AIUM able to address physician education for ultrasound and did they struggle with it compared to their ability to address it for the technical specialists? Well, first of all, they didn't address it for the technical specialists, so they were more concerned about themselves, which is understandable. The physicians that had been involved in ultrasound, Barry Goldberg and and people like him, were very concerned about educating the next generation coming up, because if they didn't, there wouldn't be a field to educate them for. But their requirements of what they felt they needed to know became so large, you were going to almost have a residency in ultrasound and there was no board certification in ultrasound and there was no structure for that to happen. Mm -hmm. The physician could choose to be strictly ultrasound, but he didn't have a board certification in it. But they were arguing and bickering about how much time should be devoted to this education and what should be included in it and what was absolutely necessary and how they were going to get exposure if they didn't have, like, for example, if you said, well, you needed to know how to calculate a a lens for ophthalmology. If you didn't have any ophthalmology ultrasound, how were you going to get it? You know, so they were having difficulty, which anybody would with that. So we just took their curriculum and called it ours. Saved us a lot of time. Exactly. Just going right around. And um, used that in the joint review committee and used it in the certification body. And said, you guys can fight amongst yourselves. Well, we didn't have to say anything. We just took (laughs) took it and did it. Which was generally, you know, it's it's sort of a philanthropic dictatorship is what it comes down Mm -hmm. to eventually. Mm Mm-hmm. Which you did very well at. Let's talk a little bit about the educational programs and the early design to suit them for the profession. There were a couple of suggested approaches, and the one solution was training an ultrasound technical specialist within a program already set up for radiology technologists and then adding some specialized training the second year, in other words, a sort of apprenticeship. And the second option was to incorporate students into a program for the first year with a core curriculum provided to all of the specialty 
specialties, including x-ray, nuke med, x-ray therapy, and ultrasound specialists altogether. The second year of the curriculum would be specialized for each modality with a few classes overlapping. I don't think you are in favor of either of these approaches. Could you explain why? It was the problem with the concept that this was sort of a radiology grab. It was a sort of way of saying, okay, you've got to go either the whole way or part of the way into being an x-ray tech before you can be an ultrasound tech. And my experience was that I had taken people who had absolutely nothing to do with medicine at all and made very good sonographers out of them. And I'd actually struggled to make good sonographers out of some radiologically based technologists. And that is not a a derogatory statement for Mm x-ray. It's just that the concepts of positioning a film in the center of the body and the beam just cascading out in a shape that covered the body mm-hmm. you got the phrase well I was there I've been there or I but in scanning you actually had to go there yeah, physically mm-hmm. and it was hard for the x-ray tech who was used to this sort of i concept of of an image being whatever the film got on it to somebody who had to create those and make maybe 15 images out of what they took one x-ray of. And x-ray physics didn't help, Mm -hmm. acoustical physics. Mm -hmm. Um, So that wasn't exactly answered. Medical terminology was the same and patient care was the same. Um, You either had to get provided and at that particular time cross-section anatomy was not common to anybody Mm -hmm. not the physicians or the technologists Mm -hmm. so you didn't have too much to gain from one narrowing it down to one background would produce the best sonographers in fact I think the best sonographers are the people who are good at graphic arts myself but anyway that's another issue but neither of these paradigms were good as far as I was concerned. We fought very hard against putting ultrasound under something else. Mm -hmm. It implies that it's a second class profession profession. instead of being standalone it was all it was under something else. Mm -hmm. We didn't like that Mm -hmm. so we fought against it. Okay for both for both those scenarios those yes yeah not good enough. And just to, so that the listeners can understand, who were you advocating to? Was it the Department of Education, American Medical Association? Well, uh, yes, it was difficult to say because creating the occupation didn't involve that detail. It was in the documents, but it didn't involve that detail. Um, The AMA was only interested in what you could do with a junior college, because that's the, the what they would, and they were also um, been told by the AMA not to create any new occupations, to get them under other ocu- existing occupations. So we were had a big fight on our hands for that one, mm-hmm. but we were able to get through it with the help of um, actually Dr. Gil Baum, who was an ophthalmologist, and he therefore was more in tune with ophthalmic technology than he was with sonography. But he was one of the pioneers of, of and he went. I, he and I went together to the AMA, and he was the one that got us. We couldn't. We had. We didn't have a voice in that place so in the AMA. For you. The hallowed halls of the AMA. You had to have an MD after your name. <laughs> yeah. And so you had to go on the coattails of somebody else. And he was that advocate. And he was that us. advocate for us, and he was the president of AIUM at the time. So that helped too. Yeah, that's important. Because the AIUM was not a standalone organization under the AMA because it didn't have a board. Huh. So, you you know, they had to hang on to somebody too. For sure. <laughs> kind of a... Yeah, they needed it as well. Yeah. So it, it, in the article, you had talked about how the, the history of the profession would have been, or the future of the profession would have mm-hmm. been drastically changed if either of those paradigms would have been accepted. Yes, because you would have been an x-ray tech before you could be an ultrasound tech. Mm-hmm. 
whatever program you were in, whether that took you two years, three years, whatever. There's quite a few sonographers today who wanted to be sonographers from the get-go, but they went to the only school around them was one that they had to be an x-ray tech first. Yeah. And that means that they would have really, radiology really would have controlled the professional ultrasound. Yes. Yes. I know we touched on this a little earlier, but let's go back to the ultrasound companies as they were starting to uh, need the ultrasound specialists to work for them in order to sell the equipment. The rapid growth of these companies in turn created a problem for themselves due to the shortage of trained operators at the time. So you, in the paper, you credit the dual role of the companies as a big reason why they were able to sell the equipment to the institutions. Explain how the ultrasound technical specialists bridged the gap for the commercial companies. Did those circumstances help shape the commercial companies that we have today? And how did the ultrasound companies' survival depend on the education of the ultrasound technical specialist? Well, we brought up earlier that mm-hmm. the fact that the commercial companies could afford to pay them more than the clinical world did, and the hospitals and the doctor's offices. So it was a no-brainer when it came to pay, if that was the driving force. And to most people, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, if you can get twice as much for what you do, you're not going to walk away from that. Yeah. Um, So that was good, and what was also good was that they were competent people who who did this. The commercial world wasn't interested in anybody. They were interested in the well-known people who would actually, their name would help sell the equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, How did the companies get around some of this dilemma? They did their own courses and their own education. And... um, you know, that I don't think the commercial companies really wanted to. It was really, they had to do it in order to sell um, because the field itself was suffering anyway and would have suffered even more if that education hadn't been given. You know, the blind leading the blind through sonography is not a good place to be. Absolutely. I even think now when you buy new equipment, there's some sort of education packaged with it. Absolutely. Or GE yeah, but it's, offers this education was actually education about the images, yes. and <laughs> regardless of what whose equipment produced them. <laughs> what you're talking about is more knobology. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fortunately, we've moved away from that. But... Um, You know, the weekend wonders, people who thought they could teach all of what we took two years to teach, could teach it in a weekend. And that's true for physician education as well as sonographer education. So, and the only trouble you got into is when you had the blind leading the blind, when you had a physician who didn't know what they were looking at and a sonographer that didn't know what they were producing. That was a very dangerous combination. Absolutely. And it usually didn't survive. Because the sonographer that knew what they were doing was not going to work with somebody that didn't know what they were reading and vice versa. Just spinning their wheels after a while. Yeah, it was self-limiting. Yes. So at one point, you guys were asked to submit the proposal for the occupation and detail the need for the profession. How did you guys go about doing this? What was this like? That was when the true philanthropic dictatorship arose. We didn't have very long... We had to do it right. Mm-hmm. And um, I say that one hour put 10 years on my life. Um, we came up with a three-ring D binder, and all the professions were there reporting to the USOE. And the people before me were the surgical techs, and they were ripped off the podium. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen to us. They were ripped off the podium because they were really sort of three months out of 12, they were functioning in the in the red. And that was no more than, than the fact that the programs associated with surgical tech were um, not paid for until a certain time. So there was just a, they weren't bankrupt, it was just a three-month hiatus where money wasn't coming in but money was going out mm-hmm. I mean that's true in every business mm-hmm. so but they were running this hearing like a court of law and you were literally under oath and, and um, in a very sort of serious um, attack type of environment it was kind of scary 
and it was our turn next and I was having to defend the creation of the occupation not whether we were paying bills on time and they could ask me anything in this D-ring binder which I had to answer to I had fortunately done most of the creating of the binder so it wasn't totally and my memory was a lot better then than it is now but it was still a pretty scary hour it was yes um and in that, part of, the, uh, of what you read was mm-hmm. the requirements mm-hmm. that we had to predict. I mean, they weren't going to create an occupation for a handful of people. Mm-hmm. They had to create an occupation and give, be, uh, authorize the giving of loans and so on to a credible-sized profession. Mm-hmm. And they were against getting any more in, in or creating any more. They wanted them to go under existing ones. Mm-hmm. So not only do we have to defend what we had, we had to defend the right to have what we had. Mm-hmm. And um, so we fortunately came through and created mm-hmm. the occupation. So. After it took 10 years off your life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a lot of pressure to be able to But I was with her. Marilyn Fay. Oh, okay. So she, she was, was a great support. She wasn't a snuggler, but she was a great support. And I was going to say, I was asking about estimating the numbers because it asked. Oh, yes, sorry. How was it done? Yeah, how did you guys. Yeah, well, there was two ways to go. One was to look at what was it, other professions, Uh see how they grew, how fast did they grow, what could be, in what ways were we like them, and just as important, in what ways were we not like them so that we could fudge the numbers one way or the other. And then the second way was to have a sort of plan B and to look at the commercial world and what they, knowing that their numbers would be high because they wanted to attract that they were going to sell more equipment than they probably were and there was more sonographers needed than they probably were. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of educated guessing was really what it was. And it was applying sort of formula not strictly, but just just your gut feeling of what the field would be. And actually, we came out pretty close. You did? Yeah. Closer than you thought? Yeah. It was Were you a little cool. over or a little under? I can't remember that, but I can remember being pretty proud of myself. That <laughs> come <laughs> for come within, Come within, you know... Good enough for government work. Yeah. <laughs> Numbers. Yeah. yeah, you said you were comfortable defending that with like, oh, I was, yeah. was actually pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Well, so then number six involved projecting the number of ultrasound technical specialists that would be needed over a decade. Yes. So how did you go about figuring the, the decade? Number? Yeah, well, we just kind of... Like you're asked to do a budget for five years. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing. You know, in ten years, where are you going to be and what are you going, what are you going to look like is a pie-in-the-sky dream, yeah? Mm-hmm. So we just dreamt. You just <laughs> dreamt and tried to dream accurately. Yes, educated dreaming. <laughs> I like that. That's a new term there. All right, everyone. Well, once again, that's going to conclude this part of the interview with Joan. There's just been so much information, we just can't stop with her. So we're going to continue on to part three um, on our next episode. So please join us then, and thanks for being with us today.